0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 100.
1: Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All
0: right, so we're doing this. So uh, welcome to the Working Class Audio Podcast, the uh, official live version, which we've never done before. I got to start with thanking our sponsors, which made this possible. Gearsluts.com, Jules at Gearsluts. He was the first person to really go, you know something, I think you're onto something and I want to be a part of it. So just want to thank Jules at Gearsluts and everybody at Gearsluts Scott. Universal Audio has been super great. Amanda over there has been very supportive. Focal Monitors, Simon has been a prince. You wish everybody would do business like Simon does business. And Gary Boss and the whole crew over at Audio Technica, also super supportive. And, uh, you know, this podcast really wouldn't have gone on without them. So Uh, sponsors, done, thanks. So here we are. We're at 25th Street Recording. We're live. We're streaming. I have an audience full of former WCA alumni. And, uh, man, these lights are hot, super hot. You all are in the shade, so you're, you're good. Boy, what can I say? So, a hundred episodes. I never thought I would get to hundred. I never. I, I just thought I'll just start, and we'll just we'll roll with it and see what happens. And started get phone calls from people. Hey, I really like the show you're doing. And Jules calls. Originally, it's funny. I, I Jules. The way that started out was, I called him to say, Hey, I want to talk to you about banner ads. And he said, What for? And I explained. And he said, Okay, well, let me. I'll get back to you. And then he heard the podcast. And I get this very panicky, you know, kind of message from him. He lives in London. He's like, you got to get on Skype right now. I want to talk to you. And so I was like, I'm in trouble. So we get on and he says, Look, man, this podcast that you're doing is outstanding. And I was just like, Okay, cool. You do it and you think you're just doing it because you enjoy it and you don't know if anybody's really sincerely going to. Take it in and 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 absorb it the way you want them to. So, and especially a podcast that does not focus exclusively on gear. So here was, you know, the head of Gear Sluts calling, you know, wanting to uh, get involved. And he jumped on and said, I want to promote the hell out of this thing. So let's let's do this. So we pressed forward and lo and behold, people really got the message. They were like, Oh, this is about working. This is about the craft of audio whether it be making records or making film or making video games and i just started to ask questions off the cuff of what i wanted to know because some of you in the audience know and some of you out there on the internet know that you know i had a studio before i've had a couple studios before but a studio in san francisco that kicked my ass and i walked away with my tail between my legs and i had a lot of questions that I wanted to ask. I thought, well,
2: how, do, you know, how does
0: everybody else do this? So that's what the podcast kind of came from, was a good ass kicking, because we all need that once in a while so we can uh, get knocked down and get back up again and figure it all out. So you all in the audience and, and some of you who aren't here, who are streaming it live, who've been on the show, you all have been a, a really great part of this. I wouldn't have been able to do this show without all of you. Each of you who have agreed to be on this show, Gracefully, just said, Absolutely. What do you need? Do you, do, you're going to send me the questions ahead of time? And I always have to laugh because I always think, <laughs> No, <laughs> you know, I'm going to Google. If I don't know you, I'm going to Google you. And even if I do know you, I'm going to Google you and I'm going to look up stuff. I'm going to listen to records you've done and I'm going to just kind of get a sense of who you are and just start randomly asking you questions. And every uh, interview is a big surprise. It's, uh, it's a real and uh, enjoyable process. Um, one of the one of the funny ones uh, early on, we were doing it on, on Skype and just recording the Skype audio. And um, I I reached out to John Cuniberti and John uh, was like, yeah, yeah, sure. So we get on Skype. Skype calls just going to hell. It's just and he says, uh, well, why don't I just come to you? Where are you? And I said, well, I'm over in Lafayette. He's like. Psh- I'm coming to your house right now, so you know I had met John before briefly, and I didn't really know him all that well. So I was like, "Oh shit, John Kunderberg coming to the house," and the kids were home, and I'm like, "Okay, you guys watch TV, uh, let's clean this up over here," and uh, John's coming over, and they're like, "Who's John?" They didn't care, but uh, John came over. He was very gracious, and, and we had a great chat, and. Each and every one of you has presented me with information that you know I thought I knew it all, and I think all of us sometimes think we're you know we know it all. But every time I talk to one of you, it is shockingly uh, refreshing, surprising, uh, educational, and I I think people are continuing to really get something out of it. So I just I have to thank you for the bottom of my heart uh, for participating and uh, allowing me to ask you questions. And really, this podcast is. You know, a way for me to uh, just ask questions. Because if I just, you know, called you up and said, "Hey, John, Ben, Tardin, let me, can I just, let me just pound you with questions," you'd be like, "I gotta go." <laughs> so the podcast is the vehicle for me to ask those questions. So um, let's talk about our uh, guest today. I felt it it was appropriate to have two guests on the show, and I wanted to get two people with rich experience that I hadn't talked to yet. And the first name that came to mind, and she'll be coming up later, was Cookie Marenko. And I called her up. I said, this is what I want to do. This is when we're going to do it. She was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm on board. But I And so Cookie was kind of locked in for a while. And then I, I struggled for a bit on who the other person was going to be. Lo and behold, I'm at AES. I find myself at, of all places, the Apogee party. And I come in and... uh Stephen Hart's sitting there, sitting at a table and talking to him. And he's telling me, you know, I haven't seen him in ages. And he's kind of telling me about what's been going on in his life. And I was like, oh, man, oh, it's kind of a rough time there. And oh, good. Glad you're back in things. You know, you're working again and everything's cool. And then I got home and I was like, you're an idiot. Stephen Hart should be on the show. He's your second guest. I was texting Stephen, calling Stephen. And of course, like the rest of you, he graciously agreed to come on and be a part of this. So, all of you here, or many of you here know him. Um, for those of you that don't know him, uh, he's worked with, a, I got to read off a list because my my brain is just fried. Uh, he's worked with David Bowie, Santana, John Lee Hooker, In Vogue, MC Hammer, Tony Bennett, Isaac Hayes, The White Stripes, Booker T, and EMGs. And he's worked with producers George Martin and Tom Dowd. Uh, he has been the past president of the, San Francisco, uh, of the San Francisco chapter of NERIS as well as a national trustee, an AES member. Uh, spent 10 years as a staff engineer over at Fantasy Studios. He was also, uh, no, actually he was the chief engineer at Fantasy Studios and he was a staff at the Plant Studios. And uh, he's got many golden, platinum records to his name. Which account for about 40 million in sales. So he's he's been busy making records apparently that sell. So we're going to talk to him about that. So put your hands together, please. Welcome my guest, Stephen Hart. Uh,
1: hello. <laughs> hello. I see your mic is on. Nice. Ha- yeah, is it on? Uh, yeah. Hello, everybody. Have a seat. Uh, I want to congratulate you for. Uh, working-class audio, because uh, it seems to be going on a great path. And I want to thank uh, my buddies here at 25th Street, where I've done three or four albums. And it's great to be here. This room just feels good to me.
0: This room does feel good. It's It's got a lot of our our friends, our peers, and some a uh, huge brain trust in this room. And let's talk about you. Let's go back a bit. You know, it's the typical question, like, what got you into audio? What was the pivotal moment? I know that everybody has, you know... I played with the four tracks and I was the guy in the band that was uh, doing the sound, but what, what was it for you? Uh,
1: it was a couple of things. I think the earliest one was, I'd say it was about 1958, when my dad gave me a Gibson acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the music beginning. And then I had a family friend who worked at CBS Uh, in New York, who put me on the mailing list of new releases. So I had every release that CBS made for years, or at least great years. So I got all just interested. But I started as a musician. What was your primary instrument? Either piano or keys, uh, which I will refuse to perform in public at this point in time still. Okay. It was a lot of fun, though. But I ended up being a manager. What kind of manager? A band manager. Oh. Ah. Uh, which, you know, now I could do that probably really effectively. Then I was, I didn't have enough confidence. You know, you, you got to be arrogant in that world. But that took me to the studio to do, to cut demos. And that was it. I was on the other side of the glass and stayed there since. At what point did you get control
0: of the control room? At what point were you mm. at the helm?
1: Uh, I think I really got my chops by opening a studio in Marin County in about 1976, which ran for about seven or eight years. And that was, uh, that was my experimentation world. Mm-hmm. There were no schools really at that time, except for the uh, incredible Raccoon School of Recording. Which was <laughs> operated by uh, it belonged to the Youngbloods, the band, the Youngbloods. They had a studio out in Point Reyes, of all places, and they offered a class. and There were two students, mm-hmm. myself and uh, Nancy Evans, if you know her. Anyways, she's in video. Okay, you know? but uh, I learned. Uh, I learned there. It was an eight track studio with. Alembic console and uh, all kinds of unique stuff that only a 60s band would have. Mm-hmm. And after that, I tried to get a job um, around. Oh, my teacher there had, he, he took me on as an apprentice. He worked staff at CBS uh, in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. uh, mainly I just watched, but I watched stuff like Taj Mahal and Santana and the Dead. So you know that pushed me way deeper into seeing uh, kind of the professional side of the world. Anyways, I couldn't find a job <laughs> after that, so I just I borrowed some money and opened a studio. Did you have a mentor? I did, I and who did. was that? I would say my first really serious mentor was Jim Gaines, uh, who was recording and co-producing Steve Miller, Huey Lewis some of the Stevie Ray Vaughan gang. Uh, he had um, Neville Brothers. Mm-hmm. I did about two years solid with him. And he, he's from Memphis. And uh, he had this beautiful way to, to record. And very straightforward, but with really, the attention was always balance. It was never stuff and fixing things and tons of effects. It was just balance. And he had this, you know, this Memphis soul, which was very low-end conscious. Oh, and he had come up. He was an assistant at Stax. And years later, I had kind of stewardship of the Stax catalog when I worked for Concord Records. I'd find his, his handwriting on tape boxes of Otis Redding and Booker T. And What are some of the lessons
0: that you learned from your mentor that stick with you that you, you can remember to this day? Things that, whether it's workflow
1: or attitude or... Sure. Um, Jim was, or is, uh, the just coolest cucumber in town. Nothing would fluster him. So whatever the hell was going on, it was just Jimmy, you know, and we were just doing our session. Uh And uh, hell, they could be out there having a war. It didn't matter to Jimmy. You know, we just kept on going. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he, he taught me to be really relaxed in the studio. There's no, you don't get anywhere by getting all hyped up about anything. And then once again, it was kind of this, well... You no, I know, I always think of this low-end foundation that he always built. And he did stuff that stuck with me for, for a long time. You know, I've developed my own variations, but, for instance, he'd record all the levels so that the faders were at zero. He didn't care about the level on tape. He just wanted to, every time you put up the song, you had an instant mix, which trickled down to the headphones, mix as well mm-hmm. because the balance was built in the record levels and you know i'd say what about the hiss man or something else.
0: nobody cares no the
1: session flow matters because that's very fast to change songs you know i mean now you can change songs in a second but then it could take a while to set up a new tune and uh, so um I don't know if I still do that or not. It's changed with digital. But that was very interesting. It was part of developing a workflow that's easy and works for the artist. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing worse than making an artist wait a long time for anything to happen.
0: And where did you go from there? At some point, we all leave the nest. Where did you go after?
1: Uh, Let's see. Well, I'd already been at for one round of engineering at Fantasy. Then came Jimmy and the plant, and then I moved to L.A. By that time, I had accumulated some gold records, some with uh, my friend Cookie, who's coming out here in a bit. Yeah. Uh, But I moved to L.A. I thought this is the place to be. My daughter was born down there, and I tried busting that nut for, you know... (laughs) A year, and uh, it was tough, you know. I wasn't, I didn't know anybody. And I kept flying up here to work. And yeah, I I was in an odd situation. I I had gold records, and you know, in the in-betweens of any work. And I was making cold calls and handing out flyers. Mm -hmm. And no studio would hire me because I was too credited. What year was that? How old were you then? Oh, that would have been, I was in my... It was early 80s. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I was in my 20s. Okay. And, you know, I mean, you show up, you're the new guy in town. I am. And plus I had post experience from working at Fantasy. I uh, had uh, worked a lot in the Foley stage and doing ADR. And I thought, well, my real goal was to get in the union doing post in L.A., which uh, requires 30 days of consecutive employment just to get in a substantial fee. And I don't know what it's like now, but at the time there were uh, something like 2,600 people on the list in front of me. I finally, I did get Compact Video in Burbank to hire me on that you know, contingency basis. And I got as far as day two of <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my job. I was working on a Magnum PI. Everybody remember that great show? Oh. Lovely. Yes. My job was placing gunshots. And my gunshot quota was uh, half of what it was supposed to be. And that had nothing to do with all the proprietary equipment they had that didn't have labels on it and just was bunches of boxes with buttons and a wall of carts. Oh, great. Yeah, it was painful. Trial by fire. It was, and it was being fired by fire. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually you, you,
0: you left, obviously. I did. Because you're still, you're here. You've been here for years.
1: Yeah, but it, there was, you know, all the people who didn't hire me, it was really for a good reason because after that I went, I finally, I called some friends and I talked to uh, Massenburg who got me a gig at GML, which was in, in Santa Monica. And I was soldering circuit boards for GML automation systems. Oh, okay. Something which I had never done. And uh, I tested, uh, the test result went like this, because, Stephen, you are beyond a doubt the slowest test we've ever run, but (laughs) you were 100% accurate. So if you can pick up pace... We want 100% accurate because it saves a ton of field work. Well, on about the third day, Jim Gaines called me and said, "Hey, Stevie, you want to go do a record in New Orleans with the Neville Brothers for three months?" And I said, "Oh no, I want to wire circuit boards, (laughs) test." So I was gone, and then it went on, and so you went to New Orleans and made a record with the Neville
0: Brothers. That was a lot of fun. So. You tried your hand in in the post world.
1: You you tried your hand at testing, didn't work out so well. No, I really needed a good dose of nepotism, but it just wasn't there. <laughs> you know. Fortunately, Jim Jim saved you. Uh, Jim Jim was great at the, at that period. Uh, worked with great artists. You know, the money was never great, but uh, you know, I wasn't really there for the money. I wasn't there to survive, though. I mean. But you didn't have a family at that point, did you? It was starting. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was in New Orleans, my wife and my daughter came. I think my daughter might have been five months old and stayed for a month or so. Mm -hmm. And that kept going. I I kept being on the road a lot after that. And I was missing my family. But I'd started to bring them with me, which nobody seemed to mind as, as long as I was flying them. Yeah, so
0: I got to ask, I mean, you're not making a whole lot, so budgetary-wise... When I moved
1: into overseas work, that and the era, you know, then we're talking later 80s, early 90s, uh, and I spent almost five years commuting to Italy with a major, major client, uh, and I worked for EMI Italia, and and... I made good money in that period. Then after that followed five years in Asia, primarily Taipei and Hong Kong. Making records. Making records. Wow. And that, that also, I mean, it wasn't hugely lucrative, not as much as the Italians, because the Italians were selling millions. I got to ask you, because I, I, I haven't talked too much about
0: this, or I don't think I've talked about it at all with, with any of my guests, but making records in other countries what are some of the differences? I mean, other than the obvious, the, the language differences or language potential language barriers, are there
1: stylistic differences? Uh, huge. In that time, I think the rest of the world viewed British and American engineers as kind of on the cutting edge of rock technology. Asia, you know, particularly Chinese Asia, uh, mainland China... I, I spent time in Beijing as well. Um, they were so far behind in pop culture. I mean, they hadn't—you know—they didn't hear the Beatles till twenty years later, and you know they were—they were behind the wall. Mm-hmm. They didn't learn how to do that. And I mean, I'm—and I'm happy that in that period I got to mentor many engineers. Uh, or assistants who became mentorees who all became successful in their countries Mm -hmm. but they needed to be taught it it was one thing to buy all the gear which they could all do but to actually make recordings that stood up to contemporary you know global releases it it takes a specific mindset I Mm -hmm. think so that, that was, in general, pretty lucrative. And some of them I would get to bring back. They'd want to work in Hollywood, primarily Hollywood. Hollywood was the draw. Mm-hmm. We'd spend months doing stuff uh, at Conway or the record plant um, at good studios in L.A. When you'd come back from these
0: other countries that maybe culturally were behind us, uh, were they, were they technological? Technologically behind us
1: they had all the gear. I mean, I'll never forget walking into my first studio in Beijing Which was actually a scoring stage. I mean, it was set up for a hundred pieces and they had just uh, Huge consoles. They had all the latest uh, at that time workstations that existed sonic and uh, stuff like that and they showed me boxes and boxes of Focusrite, Neve, you name it, all this gear sitting in boxes. And I said, well, I'm going to be here for a while. Let's plug this stuff in. And they go, oh, well, no, 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 we, we can't plug it in. I go, well, why? Well, the guy who does wiring has to plug it in. He comes, like, twice a year. <laughs> and if he has time. Uh-huh. You know, so the Chinese would just go to some international-type audio dealer, say, give us all the best, and they'd buy it. But it doesn't mean it would ever get hooked up. Interesting. I said, okay, well, let's take out stuff that's in your racks, and we'll put in the new stuff in its place. It's already wired. Did you have a memorable moment
0: in Italy or uh, Beijing or any of the other countries that you worked in people you met or experiences that you had that you think about to this day that affected you? Anything, uh, you know, breakthroughs, positive, negative, anything like that?
1: (laughs) Uh, There's many. I I will never forget a time when I walked outside the studio in, look, two times in Beijing. And I I was tall there. I mean, I'm only 5'8", but everybody else was shorter. And... I had a hat and an overcoat. It was freezing. <laughs> and I remember I walked out, and in the hallway, which is really dark and funky, and some guy who worked in the complex walked around the corner, and he saw me, and he screamed and ran the other way. But I, apparently, I was terrifying. Wow. I, I'm not sure. There's so many stories <laughs> about overseas. Uh, I can't tell you. Well, let's, but- come,
0: let's come back to your experience in the U.S. You know, mm-hmm. you've, you've worked with some pretty heavy-duty people, um, David Bowie in particular, um, Santana, John Lee Hooker. I have, I have a huge list of amazing mm-hmm. people. Um, many people go through you know, the process of the studio system of you know an assistant and working their way up. But how did you get to a point where you were working with some of these people on this list, Booker T, David Bowie, John Lee Hooker. Um, How do? You, what do you attribute to you getting to that point?
1: Well, it always had to do with somebody I knew, or where I was working. Fantasy brought me some of those clients. Sometimes I'd leave with them, and sometimes it would just happen when they were at Fantasy. I've always been, you know, a networky kind of guy, but I try to follow the money as a, I mean, all these people here are friends for the most part. And, uh, you know, but why would I network with uh, Michael Rosen? You know, he's my <laughs> buddy and he's never going to give me a job, you know? Yeah. So, and I, I did, I, uh, one thing I did that I think helped make a difference was I would go to every show, every event that was consequential on my own dime, stay in hotels. I went to AES enough until I knew all the manufacturers. And as sometimes, uh, sometimes shows could provide links to work. Mm-hmm. I, worked, I worked a while for Fairlight mixing. Jan Hammer and I had a show that was based on the music of, well, he'd scored Miami Vice. And so we toured for Fairlight a tour of conventions, right? And we'd do this big show with, you know, big screens of Miami Vice, and he'd play the scores off the sequenced Fairlight, and then he'd, you know, he'd add stuff, and, you know, he was a one-man orchestra. Now, obviously, he was badass. Yeah. And I mixed it live. It was never just, you know, a stereo playback. It was a full-spread mix each time, and... And I got several jobs from that, out of the country, in the country. But, you know, I was there with excellent source to play uh, by a great musician. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like when I have to present to anybody or anything, I I play them good music. I don't really care what the state of the recording was. I mean, you know, it has to be somewhere, but mm-hmm. it's good music that people like and that I think this is what would help me land gigs, and that relaxed
0: state of working that your mentor taught you. Did you continue to carry that through no, abs- with absolutely. all the artists you work with? Yeah, and do you think
1: that that—that's that- why I still have the clients I have. I would yeah. think, you know, it's a no-stress environment, and it should be fun. And I believe that a successful recording sounds
0: like fun. There's so many things to juggle within the context, context of being a recording engineer, at least for those that work in the world of music, just you know, your attitude, your technical prowess, um, how you handle stress, how you handle the times when there is no work. Um, how have you built up your business and stayed employed all these years? I mean, you've named
1: a few things, your networking, your attitude, yeah, and my you know networking really means investing in myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd I'd spend whatever it would take. Half it's like the old saying. You know, half of the the deal is being there. Mm-hmm. Just and showing it, up. Just showing up. Yeah. You know, so I'd show up. Um, and I mean, you were you were also like you know late
0: '80s going into the '90s. I, I mean, you were seeing a lot of technological uh, growth. Oh, yeah. Within the our tools, of course, you know SSL coming on the scene and transitions to uh, digital-based uh, tape, and eventually modular digital multitracks and you know all of that. What are some of the the uh, I don't know some of the highlights or lowlights of that that period of growth that that you recall?
1: I'm a technologist. I love technology and it's, um, but I love it as a user. Mm-hmm. I really don't care how it works in particular. And I made a point uh, of never really going there. I didn't, I think it's enough to be an operator Mm -hmm. to know how to use this stuff. And uh, it, it was like the same decision I made when MIDI kind of came into the scene, which I spent years with people struggling with to try to sync to tape and. Pre-mIDI syncing systems, and it was just a lot of waste of time mm-hmm. as far as I was concerned. And I decided I'm just never going to go there because I don't want people asking me to do that work. You know And did in
0: these technological changes, you know, I keep going back to your mentor and and how you know, session flow and you know getting things right and keeping the vibe right. Some of these technological changes that came along, while they presented you know, great opportunities, they also present potential stumbling blocks in the studio that are going to hamper performance and get in the way and oh, slow yeah. the process down.
1: Huge headaches. You know, now I just will use whatever is going to be fastest. Because to me, capturing the moment, if you're in the way of that, mm-hmm. you're not doing your job. Just kind of
0: moving forward in time here. Eventually, you know, you left fantasy, plants gone. Uh, eventually, you started. Uh, I remember when you were up at, uh, God, I can't remember what the name of the place was, but it was, uh, was it, um, it's where I think where the guys from the dead have their place now, oh, but it, uh, uh, yeah, it called.
1: I actually, I started uh, when I was in my chief engineer role at fantasy. I had, I mean, it was just an office, but I had a room there with the system. I never stopped owning a a room somewhere from, you know, day one when I opened a studio in Marin. Well, I mean, when I did international, I didn't have a room, Mm -hmm. but uh, as I brought it back home, I had to, it seemed important to business to be able to do something whenever you wanted to have a room to have yeah. access And to yeah it. no I couldn't record in my room at fantasy but I could mix I could edit I could do a lot of stuff mm-hmm. uh and I'd already been used to having a studio before that mm-hmm. and since then I've jumped around I've ha- I think I'm on my fourth room now uh I went Yeah, I went from Fantasy to TRI, which is the name of the place you're trying to think of, which at the time was Bob Weir's. Well, when I went in, it wasn't Bob Weir's. It was there. It was built by an entrepreneur as a kind of mega rehearsal space. Um, He offered me a space for a room. Well, he didn't offer it to me. I rented a space for a control room and then wired into the large rehearsal rooms, Mm -hmm. which were large, a couple thousand feet. One of them. Weir bought it and the, for a while I could stay, but after a while it had to turn into uh, just Mm Weirland. And uh, that did. So I moved up the hill to the site. It's a beautiful place, the site. Amazing with an impeccable resume. I mean, Metallica, Hootie and the Blowfish, Linda Ronstadt, George Massenberg for probably a dozen albums at least. Pearl Jam. Yeah, I mean, the list goes on. So I, that became mine to run for a couple of years. But, and even though I personally had spent lots of time in resident studios around the country and out of the country, so I was familiar with how they operate. Selling resident studios now, you know, and especially if you don't own the premises. Yeah. I mean, you have to deliver something for what you're doing so uh it was and i really couldn't sell the room for less than somewhere near a couple of grand a day with full roman board and boy the appetite just wasn't there anymore but it it was a a beautiful experience the room and the people were fabulous but eventually it got sold it just wasn't having enough return Um, as they seem to do quite often yes they do and so, I mean, I worked a couple of lengthy projects at Le Studio in, outside of Montreal, which was uh, when I was there, when I came in there the last time I was there, synchronicity had just been recorded there. The police and the Stones were there, and it was a major player room. Uh, they're gone now. I mean, I can't, I think the leftovers of it sold for 50 grand or something, you know, it's nothing. Yeah, happens quite a bit these days, time and time again. But I still, I, I still have a room. It's in a refurb warehouse, mixing only.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how often are you working? It's random. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you, worry, you, want, you ask, you know, how I get by. And, you know, through all the techno changes and all the changes that have happened over 40 years are extreme. And, you know, I look like uh, if you took my income and plotted it, you know, it's like this. You know, there's been a, a lot of downs and a lot of ups, uh, but it's, it's never constant, whatever it is.
0: I want to touch on uh, some of the health things that, that we talked about um, earlier. Uh, you, you kind of had a, a, a kind of a bump in the road uh, recently.
1: I did. I, uh, it was um, at the end of 2013 in December, I was diagnosed with liver cancer. And, uh, you know, can't say that wasn't a blow. I'd been for maybe six months before that just slowing down physically. And I will use this moment uh, to do a PSA for, uh, at it. for hepatitis C because that's why I got it. You know, I bet you that there was one person in this audience that has it and doesn't know it. I am so lucky that I survived it. Uh, and it really was a, a combination of, you know, very skillful uh, tactics by my medical team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's the politics of being on a transplant list. It, it's, it's really complicated. And uh, I had a rare blood type, which ended up being way in my favor. And I'd known I, but hep C, you know, it doesn't, I had it since my twenties. I got it, uh, in doing, getting blood work in Africa. It didn't do anything. Well, it wasn't even identified as a, a new virus until the eighties sometime. I can't remember when. Mm -hmm. So you didn't even know. And then, uh, it had these very kind of uh, primitive treatments, uh, which were interferon, uh, which is nasty stuff. And so, even before I got the cancer, I was—I tried twice to beat it with interferon. It you had to take it for six months, and it was injections. And I traveled around the world with drugs and syringes, and. Uh, you know, I was still working. I was going to ask. were, you, you were still Yeah, I was able. Time. It was just like working with the flu. Um, mm-hmm. But it never worked on me. I was a non-responder. Uh, but hep C eventually just catches up with you, you know. So, you know, the it's popular now on, uh, in the media. They advertise a lot. But it, it's really serious that you should be tested because it can be cured now. Mm-hmm only as of a few years ago and you can avoid all the shit that i went through which was a lot of shit what did i figure out in the first year after surgery i took uh seventeen thousand pills injections every day self-administered and more scanning and you know uh radioactive treatment than any person should have Mm -hmm. and uh, I mean I'll be it's been two years now and change Uh, so everything looks really good I don't have hepatitis C anymore Um, and uh, I'm clear but it took a big chunk out of my my work and uh, that's an ass kicker that's a real ass kicker. It was an kicker. ass kicker. You know, I tried to find, I I became a day trader because I could lay in bed and day trade. Now, you win, you lose, but I, I did kind of figure out a way to make it work for me, you know? And, you know, I, I know the year before, I mean, I'm not talking living on money, but I, I picked up 20 grand in 2014 and flat last year, you know, and what I do is, because it's stressful, you have to watch it all the time. It's, it's like a baby. What I'll do when I get sick of it, which is often, mm-hmm. uh, I'll just sell out. At a moment, Well, will either break even or make something and wait till I feel like it again. At any point, did you stop doing audio? Uh, yeah, six months of nothing. I finished my term as a trustee in the academy while on chemo. And I will never forget giving my um, exit speech at a board of trustees meeting with, you know, 200 people in there and uh, all those people. And just, uh, I, you know, I know I look like shit, but uh, I probably didn't make a ton of sense either. But I, but I lived it out. And I don't know. It's all, it's all worked out. But, you know, it, you know the, uh, yeah, Bowie and Steve Jobs died of exactly the same thing. So it's not a question all of how much money you have or power. There's just a part that's luck. But you, you, you recovered and you got back into it. Yeah, I started going slowly. Uh, I wouldn't take any session that looked like I'd spend more than six hours in the studio because that was about as much as I could take. Um, or I made sure I have an assistant that that could really sit in for me. Hmm. And sometimes I just hired other qualified firsts as assistants.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know if they were you know I was paying so. They were showing up. So they were showing up. <laughs> and, you know, if, if, if I was getting uh, confused or fucked up from all that stuff, you know, I just put them in there and, and hang back. How did it feel to come back, and be in the studio after all that hell? Oh, it's been really gradual. But, um, oh, I, I wouldn't think of not returning.
0: Was that hard to be away from it for six months?
1: Were you going a little
0: stir crazy? No, No.
1: I mean honestly, and you know, it's kind of was a two-year break, but six months is nothing. I'd been doing it for forty years, all the time. Yeah, it it, you know, it was okay. Plus, I felt like shit, so I really didn't want to be there. It's not a. Plus, I assume that you know your perspective greatly
0: changes when you think that there's a potential of. You're not making it out. Yeah, it. No,
1: it is my, and the big change for me is, um, everybody here knows what it's like to be a freelancer. Now in 40 years of recording, I've spent 10 in what I call corporate recording world, which would be working for fantasy or the plant mm-hmm. and the rest as a free agent or a studio owner. And now as I was saying to somebody here earlier, um, I live by the day, totally. I mean, I have a schedule. Um, I I have things booked when they're booked, but I've made my world so that I work when I want to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's crucial. Uh, and that may have happened anyways. Uh, you know, because... Uh, For me, mixing is kind of a a solo sport. Once you gain a client's trust, they'll let you mix without them. Yeah. So that's what I do because it saves them money. Uh, They usually get better mixes. And people are really interested to see what an uncoached pair of ears comes up with. I usually don't. I mean, unless I have to listen to a reference rough, mm-hmm. I don't. Plus, I, I bet after all
0: these years, you're probably getting pretty good at this, huh?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I still get work. <laughs> but lately, I've been doing uh, something that I, that I really love. It's just hard to, <clears throat> you know, I, I'll, I keep visualizing it happen more frequently. But mixing live streams uh, is become my new passion. And it's kind of like front of house is not my passion. Uh-huh. Uh, I've done it for national tours and stuff, but, but basically I hate it. You know, I'm always the guy who forgets to put up the talk mic. And, uh, you know, it's like I'm not built for that. Yeah. Um, and streaming, but I love live. And streaming's kind of this in-between world. You have this either a real studio environment like a truck or some temp setup that you control. Sure. The music's live, just like front of house, you don't get a, you know, it's live, so whatever's going, it's broadcast. If you fuck up, it's out there. The difference between front of house and being a streaming mixer is, if see in front of house, it's gone. That moment's over forever. In streaming, if it it is archived, they're capturing your fuck ups. They're capturing the fuck ups, and and I found. And at first, I thought well, my first gig was with Train at the Fillmore, and it was sixty four inputs. It was a big, a big thing, and it was for Amazon Prime. And I thought, oh well, shit, you know, they'll let me remix it. Um, <laughs> it's Amazon. You know, well, which is true. If, there was, if the performance was so amazing, they would have had me remix those for the archive. But, you know, if, if it wasn't a special night or whatever, or they don't care, or the mix was good enough, you know, it, it just stays whatever was broadcast live is what's played back in the archives later or for Christmas shows or whatever the hell they use all that content for. But I don't know, I like, I've come to live with it. You know, when you make a mistake, it's okay. nobody actually notices. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and and streaming, you know, people, they don't expect studio sound. They want a good live balance. But, you know, you've got that many open inputs and everything. There's no way you can... It kind of all goes back to If you to your, live with the band and go out with them, you can learn all that stuff. It goes back to your mentor. What about the tape hiss? Yeah, nobody yeah, cares. right. So, nobody Just cares. get the
0: good balance and, and make the vibes good.
1: That's true. And, and I, w- I wanted to add to the mentor, because I did leave out Tom, Tom Dowd. I didn't have several years with Tom Dowd like I did with, um, with Jim Gaines, but uh, I had three months. And he was he was extraordinary and he he was mainly he i saw he, the way he handled artists was was different than anybody i'd been used to he he was really great and accommodating and he would kind of just make them do great performances and sometimes it would kind of be close to the edge of torture, but, but not the kind where you're ranting and raving and screaming and belittling people. Right. You know, I mean, the best example I can think of is he'd hold up the metronome to the talk back before the take would start. No click track. He'd hold up this thing. Everybody could hear the tempo. They could do a count, bang, he lets go of the talk back. He'd leave the metronome on in the control room. And when we'd get to the second chorus, he'd hold down the talk back and put it right in the metronome right into the mic. And they'd be, of course, a half a beat off, you know. Yeah. And he'd, you know, he'd call the take, stop it. And he would do that shit until they got it right. But he did it in such a way that. He just, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he was tough. He just was a gentleman you know, a real gentleman, like, you know, and those two guys, uh, George Martin, him, that's the, that's the big walk away with me is like, these guys are gentlemen. You know, they honestly appreciate the art that's happening and they honestly have really good manners and- uh, Good manners are
0: important, aren't they?
1: Yes, they are. Well, I certainly hope you're enjoying
0: our interview here with Stephen Hart. And, of course, Cookie Marenko is going to be coming up shortly. Just want to do a quick sponsor break with Audio-Technica. At the end of the show, we're going to be giving away a couple pairs of ATH-M40Xs. Those are my favorite Audio-Technica headphones. And those headphones are known for being some of the best headphones under $100. And I certainly couldn't agree more. Uh, I enjoy them immensely. As you all know, I talk about them on the show quite a bit. Uh, So I'm just going to tell you this. Have a listen sometime. Judge for yourself. You know, you could take my word for it or you could just, you know, go out, try them out, see what you think. Compare them to the other headphones from other manufacturers and, of course, compare them to the other headphones within the audio Technica line and, you know, make your own judgments, of course. So that's it. Let's uh, get back into the 100th episode of the Working Class Audio Podcast with Stephen Hart and Cookie Marenko coming up. well, this is awesome, and I think, speaking of good manners, I think we should uh, bring out our friend Cookie here. But before we do, I, I want to just kind of introduce her a little bit and, of course, hear how you met Cookie. Um, she, uh, Cookie Marenko is the uh, founder of uh, OTR Studios. She's the founder of Blue Coast Records. She seems to work with really good drummers. She's worked with Max Roach, Brain, Kenny Arnoff, Steve Smith, She's also worked with Tony Levin, Buckethead, Lady Smith, Black Lombazo, Mark Isham, and Mary Chapin Carpenter. That's just like a handful. She is a fierce, fierce advocate for high-res audio. She sticks to her guns. And say what you will about high-res, we all have different opinions about it. I really respect Cookie for uh, what, what she's going after. And uh, let's bring her in. Bring her in. Yeah, yeah. Cookie Marinko. <laughs>
1: welcome.
2: That was fascinating.
1: Oh, well, good. <laughs> yeah. Cookie and I go way back. Yeah. To Wyndham Hill. Yeah. Yeah. We were Wyndham Hillers. Yeah. T- t-
0: tell me yeah. about me. Tell me about meeting Stephen. Because you were, you were mentioning something about tape cutting.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that um, uh, and Stephen, I don't know if you know this, but you were probably the first outside engineer I ever worked with because I had been confined to my own studio. And when I took the job in a r at Wyndham Hill, I was being sent to different studios. And I came to work with you. And um, I think you we were working on a Will Ackerman project at the time.
1: Uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't remember, because we did many, Yeah. Uh, or were co-involved. I did three Wills. But what sticks out in my mind is uh, we were working on a winter solstice. Right.: uh, Project. At, I think the first one. The producer who's Don Atkinson Hi, Don, if you're around uh, she had an extreme health issue and had to leave the project, and we got kind of left with a chunk of it. Yeah. And we finished okay. it up, and uh, you know, that record and the two consecutive ones are still for sale. I wouldn't venture a number. Uh, but it's substantial.
2: I think uh, Winter Solstice 2, which is the one you're talking about, Mm -hmm. is still up in the top 10 of Christmas albums. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty amazing the the number of people around the world I run into that remember that that record. It was also interesting to me because um, when Dawn went into the hospital and the project was uh, left in our hands, there was a whole change of attitude with some of the musicians. One of the interesting stories, <laughs> I won't mention the band's name because they're actually really good friends right now. But when I first took the job in A&R, most musicians think of A&R people as non-musical. They're the, the corporate structure. It's the record label, even at Windham Hill. And um, I remember I had a band that I was the A&R rep for. Uh, it, they were doing their record down at a different firm, and they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> I was not allowed into the studio because I was the A&R rep. Subsequently, when that project got left in our hands, I ended up producing that same band. Mm-hmm. And it was a whole different thing. And at that point, they realized, oh, she's a musician. I mean, really, that's what I think of myself as, as a musician first and an engineer Second and producer, and I ended up producing their other albums after that. It was it was like an eye opener for a lot of the musicians because I had never had that kind of relationship with them where I was actually talking them in musical terms. So it was kind of fascinating. It
1: was a musical team. I mean, the those were.
2: It was a great record.
1: It was a great record. Those were creative days. Yeah. For then, we had a really good budget. Yeah. Uh, it was just a an unusual time, yes. it was a really good time.
0: When is this time period that you
1: met? Pff, early 80s?
2: Actually, that was probably late 80s.
1: Or late 80s, but yeah. I think I did my first Wyndham Hill project
2: right. in
1: the early 80s. Yeah,
2: and I um, took a job there in 87, and was there till about 1990, and Winter Solstice was somewhere. Winter Solstice II was in there somewhere. Yeah,
1: I don't remember the years of that. Yeah. But I do, uh, let me add quickly here, there was a, I did work in that environment where the A&R or anybody from the label was not allowed in the studio, uh, which which puts the engineer in a very difficult place. Yeah. Because uh, I was working for EMI at the time and they would, this band wouldn't, they said, the rule was, if the label shows up, you shut it down right away. And the budget, when I came on to that project, well, I came on to mix, but they had already spent eight hundred thousand dollars. Wow. wow! And uh, I would go to get a paycheck at EMI's office, and the the A and R guy would be going, "Come on, man, give me a cassette, give me something, <laughs> give me something, <laughs> I give me can something. go on." <laughs> it's like, and I'd have to make the choice: well, do I ever want to work with the artist again, which was a yes, uh, or do I want to listen to this guy, you know? but uh what a what a weird thing yeah cookie what's your primary instrument
2: i started playing the piano when i was four and then um played the violin for about four years in addition when i was 10 and then somehow got fascinated by the oboe and made a switch so i was actually i wasn't a bad violinist for being 12. (laughs) (laughs) you know community colleges and i was still playing piano But I was fascinated by the sound of the oboe. And they came around to our elementary school, and I never forgot the sound of the oboe. So I begged my parents, and I was the oldest child, and so I was the one that they were experimenting with. Sure, let her play the oboe. So I got an oboe. And I went from being first chair violinist to the only oboe player and switched over until I uh, ended up in the band. And those were my band years, and the band... (laughs) Years in high school means when you play the oboe and you're in the marching band, you learn how to play drums, too. And the funny thing is, is the drummers are always drunk or stoned or something. Oh, you can't read music.
0: I resemble that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so it was the oboists who um, were the ones that could, were the only ones that could actually read the music and play time. That wow. was funny. Not that we didn't uh, do a little drinking on the side, but... You know, we could read music, uh-huh. so that was the advantage we had.
0: You were dipping your reeds in vodka, weren't you? <laughs> uh,
2: how did you know? Actually, you know, okay, it was high school, and that's what we we did.
0: <laughs> you you really did do that. Didn't we they? really oh, did God. do
2: that. I remember I had a, a, a the King and I musical. It was one of these after-school things, and I was brought in. It was funny. Our high school happened to have five oboists. Two of them were national champions, and so it was a very competitive group, so we were all pretty good, and we were all just a little bit lazy on the oboe end. And, um, yeah, we would get these gigs. Uh, you know, community theater paid a little bit. When you're in high school, it's okay. And it was high school, and we were rowdy.
0: Where was this? What, 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 where were you living? Where'd you grow up?
2: Um, I grew up on the peninsula in San Mateo.
0: Let's get out of, uh, out of the oboe section for a bit and move forward. Kind of similar questions I was asking Stephen. Uh, what was the pivotal moment that got you... In the audio?
2: Well, just to step back a little bit into the area of sound, um, somewhere in my teens, I became fascinated with just the physics of sound, um, the overtone series, and how it it worked. And so I was studying a lot of physics of sound. And that led to a curiosity of different music around the world. So I, I started studying the North Indian classical sitar. Um, because it had a whole different temperament and the way music was presented, real different than our Western culture. I thought I wanted, well, I wanted to be a film composer when I was young, it headed that direction when I went into college. And again, you know, this bringing me back to sound, I learned how to tune pianos. So as a kind of a gig when I was 18 and 19, I would be out there tuning pianos because, you know, you you start to learn what um, equal temperament is, and how to tune, and how to stretch octaves or not. And you know, you learn that things aren't really in tune. And you also learn what A440 means. And you start to learn that octaves 220 is going to be the same note. 880 is going to be the same note an octave up. So there were these things that I would learned because of physics. Then I joined, well, I started playing some jazz, was in a band. Um, studied synthesizers, went specifically to San Jose State also just to study some of the synthesizer fellows that were down there, like Lou Harrison was down there. There were some unusual talents. Mills College um, had some great people over there. Um, So this avant-garde experimental band I was in one day said, this would be, your house would be a great place to have a studio. Thought, yeah, sure. Okay, we need a demo. We just quit some dumb rock band we were in. I didn't know what I was getting into, really. At this point, I started teaching piano when I was 14. So I had an understanding I had, uh, of how to run my own little business. So me and my partner at the time, who was a drummer, we both waved $10,000 uh, at each other and said, okay. I walked into Sound Genesis and I said, who wants to take my money? And that's kind of how it started. I, don't, I never aspired to be a recording engineer. It was just something that I think because of my teaching background, my music teaching background, um, affinity for sound, understanding music, it came easy for me. Uh, What what didn't come easy for me was memorizing all the names of all the gear. (laughs) You know, this model number, this and that. You know, to me, after a while, you know, being a woman, you're a little more identifiable. So a lot of the manufacturers got to know me and I got to know them. And I would just say, oh, uh, yeah, you know, John LeGreux's box. Or, you know, just.
0: You identified <laughs> be it by the, by, the, by the people at the company.
2: Exactly. Yeah. A little, so, more,
0: little more personable.
2: Right. I still don't know the name of some of these gears. You know, it's got eight channels on it, that one. So it, it came easy to me. And, and I just kept, I just didn't look back. Well, and then the reality was we spent $20,000 in 1981. Walked into Sound Genesis. Anybody out there remember Sound Genesis? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, I spent a lot of time going in there, a lot of time researching. There were no schools to really learn, like you said. I didn't really have any mentors. I had some friends that had a four track, uh, one of the guys in the band, Mark Isham, and two other guys, and that was about it. And so they would give me hints about what gear to buy. Started reading some mixed magazine. And the guys at SoundJenna just just saw my money coming and said, "Sure, we'll take your money." And I'm still using that gear today. Now it's vintage, but all of that gear has lasted, and I'm still—it's still there, and it's still amazing, and it still sounds incredible.
0: I'm curious about your your approach to recording, the way you've come at it. I mean, it sounds like your your theory coming into it was really strong. You know, from a, from a musical standpoint. You had, you said you had no mentors. So, what was your approach to, or influence? I, I really is is the question. What was influencing you to, how to mic something, sounds to get, you know, how did that all come about?
2: Well, you know, that was a funny uh, thing about meeting Stephen was because I really didn't know. I was kind of guessing, and I would call people up and ask them, you know, what mic should I use on a kick drum? And then a lot of times. Um, you know that mic might not be available to me, so I'd try something else and find out, "Oh, actually, I like the sound of this better. But I would say it took me like on the piano, which is my instrument, and I have a seven foot Steinway. It took me ten years to come up with the sound that I liked, and some of it was watching other engineers, like when I would go to a session and I still do, probably all of you do, I would look and see, "Well, I wonder what he's doing, do I like it or not?" or in the in the case of the piano sound, it was another engineer that came in. And I was doing the more typical thing that probably everybody does with the 414s over the hammers. That was one of the things I read about. Never liked that sound. I was a fan of ECM, so I was always looking for that music. And then um, uh, an engineer for Wyndham Hill came down to my studio, mic my piano in a really odd way that I'd never, I just didn't think would work. And it sounded amazing. So I took that concept modified it until I got the sound that I'm still using today, which for the piano was just um, a couple of uh, B&K 4012s through Millennias and you know a little pattern in there. But it took 10 years to get there and like the sound.
0: So did I, you make a lot of records or recordings that you just, in retrospect, were like, ugh, this is, not, this is not what I want, this is not what I expect?
2: Sure, you know what? I think there's not one record that I think is finished. <laughs> I don't think, I, I, there's a, every record I wish I could remix. It kind of depends on the day.
1: Evolving art.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I want to go back to your question about why did she get into audio? Because I, my view is that Cookie is like this force of music. Uh-huh. And that's kind of a non nonspecific uh, skill pack there. It's just all music. And she had to record out of necessity
2: that's true
1: <laughs> yeah i mean she really had to because there was too much music in her back then to buy time was relatively expensive even at a at a low level yeah i mean that my first session that i paid for which was a one inch eight track session it was 75 dollars an hour which for me was a big chunk yeah i hate you know well i'm not going to compare it to today but uh that's why she got there. Yeah. Well, she's just all music and recordings. The next moment.
2: That's um, an interesting observation. <laughs> it's not far from the truth. And, and this is
0: OTR Studios we're talking about, right? Yeah. What does OTR stand for?
2: It stands for Out There Recording. Uh,
0: I was thinking it was going to be On the Record, but
2: yeah, a lot of people have um, thought that and other things. Uh, but it was. Um, I was in a band. It was called the Out There Orchestra, and we were pretty out. And so we needed a demo, and we thought we would just be recording really out-avant-garde jazz. Well, the reality was, was after we spent that first $20,000, 6 months later, we had to spend another 20000 Oh, yeah. And you find, you, you know, you just find out all the things you need to supplement. At that point, I've been in debt since.
0: <laughs> Continually. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: And in the words of um, Steve Albini, you're always servicing the debt. And if, you know, it's if if you can keep making the payments, you keep doing it. I finally stopped buying gear about 15 years ago. (laughs) I think when the, you know, 2000 came, I said, that's it. I've got enough. I've got finally everything I need. I'm still, I'm not even going to tell you how many dollars I am in debt. But I will be chasing that until I die. I'm happy. I'm doing what I want. Uh, It's given me opportunities to do music in a different way now.
0: But you eventually, you moved on. I mean, not, you didn't move on, but you expanded to record other artists. It, it went beyond just your demo purposes. It had to. Yeah. You it had, had You to. had to service the
2: debt. I had to service the debt. So very soon after, uh, well, the band actually never made a demo. Oh. No, we learned how to service <laughs> the debt first. And then <laughs> That's never. That's what happens. Yeah, and never looked back. And, and my partner at the time, who was a drummer, he never really ad- adapted to working in the studio. So because of my history as a piano teacher and knowing how to you know, do follow-up calls, do the kind of networking you're talking about, just talking to people a- and-, and generating sales, I like to teach my young engineers that really, if you don't know how to make a sale, you're not in business, we're all salespeople here. And so I had a concept of being able to make a phone call back, listening to what my customer really wanted, figuring out what we did well and continuing to go after the money, focus on the people who enjoyed our work, and it builds from there. So we never finished, we never did the band demo. And three years after, I had to come to terms with myself and say, "Uh, I either do the studio or I do music. So I stopped playing the piano. And that was it. I haven't played music as a musician since.
0: And the studio OTR continues to this day, correct? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Still servicing the debt.
2: Still servicing the debt.
0: Still making records. Um, I want to talk about OTR a little bit. What was that experience for you like? Of you built it in your home, and where's it? It's it's in the Oakland Hills. Is that right? Uh, Belmont. Belmont. Yeah. And what were the experiences you went through? You know, neighbors. Did you ever have neighbors complaining or? Oh yeah. Uh... <laughs> How did you handle that? And
2: um, well, it was an interesting time. Uh, The house is on the side of a hill, and it was two floors at the time. And so the lower floor was the control room and a a large performance room. And we had a couple of places we could build some mock-up ISO rooms. The neighbors, you know, this was interesting to me. The neighbors were fine with us playing wild avant-garde jazz five nights a week until three o'clock in the morning but something about the parking really drove them crazy. It wasn't the noise, it was the parking. And there was a time where, um, depending on who our next door neighbor was, uh, I remember one time we had Brain and Buckethead over on a Sunday afternoon at two o'clock. Okay, yeah, it was loud, but it was Sunday afternoon. And you know, you get the police coming over, they get to know you after a while. And it's like, I said, I can't believe it. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. And they said, look, we're, we're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> I kind of scared the police off at that point. But I remember the days when they would show up at 10 o'clock. So we, had this, we learned to stop the drums at 10 to kind of tone it down. And then we eventually added a third floor below. So we had to dig down, I don't know, about 14 feet, push it out, and made a whole other area. So I think the total area now is about 2,200 square feet. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a. you know, I think of it as a big home studio. The commute's pretty easy, so.
0: <laughs> working at, at your own studio, did you ever venture out to other studios, other commercial studios?
2: Oh, yeah, and I loved it. Field trip. I, it, yeah, well, after working at Wyndham Hill and being able to work with Stephen, and um, uh, I really had the bug for working elsewhere because you know what? when something breaks, it's not your problem. And you can just walk away and say, okay, I'll be back in 10 minutes. I'll be back in 15 minutes. Just you know, And you know, like you said, there's, we're, we're all of the same kind of mentality. We're all firemen, really, is what we do. We deal with people living on the edge, their money and their creativity. It doesn't get any more dangerous than that. And they're ready to explode. And so our personalities have to be um, very understanding, caring, always with an eye to keep things calm. And so when things break, and there hasn't been a studio I've been in that something didn't break, you you want to, you learn how, okay, you know what they're going through. So you kind of take your artist outside and let the, the people who are taking care of the studio just deal with it.
1: It's a good time to go to lunch. Yeah. I know Narda used to he he worked with a lot of women he would go shoe shopping oh. for for technical you know downtime really yeah oh yeah. well, you know there's you can distract people easily enough yeah. to, to make them sit there and watch is torture eventually um you found
0: yourself in dipping your toes into the world of high res how did high res get on your radar and and how is it how is it that it's become your, your passion, one of your passions?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I think through the, the years, I was never really fascinated by technology. At least I didn't think I was. But I seem to be, because I was on the peninsula, a place where some of the people developing technology would come up and test things out. So um, some of you might remember DIAXIS and the Studer DIAXIS. So it wasn't very far from us. So I got to know the founders, Jerry Kirby and some of the other people working there. We became a beta test site. So that was, I think it was the first um, digital audio workstation on the Macintosh. It was 83 or 84. They used to send me in as a spy at AES to ask questions of other people. I used to rent um, Peter Gotcher, if you you all know Mm -hmm. Peter, some of my um, devices so he can and his Lynn drum chips. You remember those days. So
0: for the for the people listening that, that don't know who Peter is, can you...
2: Yeah. So uh, Peter was one of the founders of DigiDesign and now Avid. I don't he, know.
1: He invented Pro Tools.
2: Right. He was the inventor of Pro Tools. I mean, that's okay. the core. Yeah. So uh, I got involved with these folks down in the uh, with the technology aspect and they would come up and test stuff with us so... You know, we were all kind of fed a bunch of stuff at the time about digital. You remember the 80s where digital was the savior, no tape hiss and this and that. And I think we all came to realize that, well, it wasn't all exactly true. Um, And then things would start progressing and people would continue to come to us and bring us things. There was just a point where uh, I, I ended up working with Liquid Audio which was also one of Jerry Kirby's companies. Mm-hmm. And that was the first um, MP3 downloads. So I acted as their uh, one of their main engineers who would go out and do recordings, live recordings, like you were saying about the streaming. That was kind of my gig. Mm-hmm. I would go to these things. We would upload to the internet back in 1997, um, have the downloads available. People thought we were absolutely nuts. This will never go anywhere. And then right after that, I, I just didn't like the sound. And um, most of the people that I had recorded over the last few years, uh, I never had the opportunity to work with David Bowie and a lot of the pop stars. Uh, my bent was more towards acoustic musicians. So I had a lot of great acoustic musicians that I had a chance to work with. And I just found that I preferred working on tape. So I went back to working on tape, stopped working on Pro Tools, stopped on Diaxis had long uh, already gone in, by the wayside. And what I came to find out was just for my own sake, I was making records that I wanted to enjoy the sound. So the gear I was buying was getting better. It's because you know, I was in there every day. I wanted it just to sound good for me. I didn't even know what an audiophile was. So there was a point where somebody heard the music. I'd gone back to tape in the 2000s. Gus Skinness, who some of you know also, was involved with um, Sony and what was called the Diaxis. I'm not Diaxis, I'm sorry. The Sonoma system, the first DSD recorder. Um, When we were experimenting for Blue Coast, Gus said, here, let's record using DSD also and tape. Now still to this day, my preference is tape. We're now at Quad DSD. It comes really close and for a lot of things, like when we want to edit and the convenience, I, you know, I'll go to Quad DSD.
1: Because it's so convenient to have 10 gig album downloads? Man, I don't, I'll tell
2: you, that wasn't my idea of a good time. Um, what I, I mean, I was happy enough with DSD, and I was really happy about working on tape. And the, then I was introduced to this audiophile community. So when I first launched Blue Coast, it was 2007. If you remember 2007, well, uh, let me back up a little bit. After 20 years of having the studio and looking back and doing it 24-7, I just didn't feel complete. I I wanted to remember what I had done instead of just day after day, more sessions. It was getting more difficult to book sessions. People in their home studios, you know, the quality was going down. I was getting frustrated. I took some time off to really think about what I wanted to do. So I decided to, well, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to (laughs) try. It's 2002. The, The music industry, Napster's around. There's kind of a collapse going on. Oh, yeah. go go spend as much money as you possibly can. Oh, refinance your house and spend as much money as you can going to the site to create a new kind of surround sound. And that's how Blue Coast started. It was really about creating a surround sound technique. And Gus was at those sessions and he said, well, Cookie, you're going to make this into an album, aren't you? And I said, "Um, I, I guess so. But at that point, it still took five years to develop the name and the artwork, the brand, and everything. It was 2007. Walmart declared every album shall be $9.99. I mean, the industry was in collapse and decay. Um, MP3s hadn't quite taken over, but uh, there was, you know, the beginning of the frustration for the record industry. And I had decided to do the highest quality recordings I possibly could.
0: Just running straight in the other direction of all of this. Yeah. I love that.
2: So um, I had some friends. That, you know, A lot of people knew me from my acoustic music and working for, for the labels, and they would say, well, Cookie, we'll put out your record. Um, so what's your retail price going to be? And I said, $40. <laughs> they said, wait a minute. forty, Cookie, Walmart just said everything's going to be 9 I said, look, nobody's going to buy it anyway. <laughs> why not just make it $40 and Fuck them. It's, yeah that's exactly what yeah. I said thank you uh, and it turned out to work in my favor and what I found was suddenly an audiophile community that I never knew existed and so I started going to some audiophile conventions and I'll tell you being a woman well look around being a woman. In this business seems tough. This is nothing. Walking into uh, an audiophile convention was little lady, what are you doing here, little lady? I mean, it was- oh. <laughs> so, what I did was I would take my discs from manufacturer to manufacturer. Now, this is a great place for anybody doing quality recordings, it doesn't even have to be high resolution. This is a place where people love music and they appreciate what you're trying to do. So there were hundreds of rooms at this convention in New York, and I had all my discs and I just brought one in and I and said, well, what you got there, little lady? I said, oh, you know, why don't you play cut number one? And they'd put it on and they'd go, oh, wow. And then people would come in the room and say, uh, what is this? And wow, these speakers sound great. So then what I started to realize was my recordings made their speakers sound good. They sold, more, they sold more gear. So the manufacturers actually picked up on it before the audio files. And so we made a few um, interesting deals where manufacturers were buying our records just to give away because it sounded good on their speakers. It was a, you know an interesting twist, and we just went along with it.
1: Did you buy one of those, like, granite turntables, you know, for thirty or $40,000 that come on a break? I remember seeing those at the audiophile shows. Oh,
2: those, oh and it's even worse now.
1: Oh, I know. What, $30,000 monoblocks? Oh, yeah. You're, yeah. <laughs> it goes on and on.
2: Oh, I could tell you stories. You know, now uh, customers will invite me over to their house to hear my music over their systems, mm-hmm. half-million-dollar systems. And it sounds so bad, and you, you just don't know what to say. And now also because, um, well, and actually after that first show, uh, and I just went from room to room giving the manufacturers discs and letting them play it. Um, uh, we developed a reputation, uh, and people wanted more. We had to figure out how to make more music. Hey, do you remember Bud? Bud? Yeah. Which Bud Spangler?
1: Bud, the Sony thirty three twenty four. Yeah. It was kind of a little off to- topic, but it, there was a personality to Bud.
2: Yeah.
1: Bud was a tape recorder. Uh, Wyndham Hill bought Bud, who was, I'm sure, one of the earliest 24-track tape-based digitals. Uh, at the time, I think there was three on the West Coast. Uh, and the first thing that happened was it was retrofitted, or maybe it wasn't the first thing, but Apogee retrofitted, retrofitted it with converters. And we'd start projects on Bud who would get shipped to wherever we were working. But there were so few of them around, he, Bud would get taken away. Uh, to, I, I don't know if you had this experience, but I remember being you know in the middle of a project with Will Ackerman, and, and you know... Uh, The office would call up and said, well, I'm sorry, Bud's going to be with Springsteen for the next week in Arizona. Bud was for sale. Bud was a slut. Bud was a slut. That's
2: right. Bud went to the highest bidder.
1: He did. Well, he was very expensive himself. Yeah. Uh, He looked at, by the end, he was like dinged and dented and... But I always, it was always this warm feeling when Bud's blue road case showed up, you know. (laughs) Never mind. So
0: I got to ask, with with the high res where we're at now, physical media uh, is not really selling with the exception now, of course, vinyl sales keep growing each year. So is high res streaming becoming, will it become more of a prevalent thing?
2: Um. Yeah, interesting. Outside of the United States, if you're a producer or a record label, you're going to find yourself a lot happier talking to people outside of the United States because their, their idea of music and higher quality is much different than, than here, much more accepting. 80% of our audience is outside of the United States, Japan in particular. And Japan is, I think, the second largest country for music sales. And per capita, it's three times what we are here. So in Japan, we've become very close with uh, Sony Japan and the people developing technology there. Uh, There's a a couple of um, internet companies that that are developing DSD streaming. So last year, we did some of those live streaming events. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what's interesting is, in the United States, bandwidth is... So slow that you can't really do it in a venue here a DSD broadcast requires um, thirty megahertz of upload speed that's just really tough to find in this country in Japan I mean they laugh at us when they when we I even talk about it as we can't do it um, they're already doing it and we're we're talking to them about actually doing radio shows in DSD, and they they want it.
0: Can it exist in cities in the United States that have Google Fiber?
2: Um, well, last I read, Google Fiber closed.
1: Yeah, that's what I read too. Yeah. They gave up. It's too
2: bad. Yeah. So, yeah. but I, I think that here, yes, actually, um, what's interesting is we've been able to stream DSD in hotel rooms, which had terrible bandwidth, like what we'll do now is, we'll go to the audio shows. We'll take a room. Um, we'll record something and you know have it uploaded, and then just to demonstrate the streaming. Uh, typically, what will happen with the uh, Prime C technology that we're using is it will default to the lowest common denominator. So if the or the the sound card. So if if you're having trouble with DSD. You can bring it down to a ninety-six, twenty-four and have it stream that way. So you can you can go it's on demand and stream as you like. The the nice part is the technology is so new that we're talking to the company about monetizing in a way that makes sense for the music industry. Spotify doesn't make sense to me. But we're at We're at the gate now where we can actually make some decisions and talk about some new ways to monetize the music in high res that will probably trickle down to some other ways of monetizing.
0: And is this all dependent on internet bandwidth growing over time, especially in the United States?
2: Uh, For high resolution, yeah. I think in five years we won't even be calling it high resolution. I think it's just going to be the way it is. Bandwidth is going to get... Bigger, the pipes are going to get bigger. This, it's all going to get better. Uh,
1: so in five years, then your albums are going to be like 100 gigabit downloads. <laughs> That's
2: the problem. Oh boy, I did well, want to- <laughs> Surround. yeah, yeah, already there. yeah,
1: great. I, I did want to, I just read a, a vinyl spec because you brought up vinyl and it's gross. Uh, year to date sales are. 10% lower than last year.
2: Exactly. I wanted to miss. That's true.
1: So watch for a decline.
2: Yeah. So it's starting to happen. It's It's a little scary what's going on now. I think a lot, there's so much comp- confusion in the music industry to the public. They don't know what to do. Even the audio files are confused. So everybody's kind of going to streaming just because they don't know what to do. hmm Um, the technology on the consumer end needs to get easier. Um, Vinyl is down. If you're a record label, you realize the only reason vinyl was up was because of the back catalog, albums that had already sold. That's what's selling now. If you're a new artist and you think you're going to press 500 or 1,000 units and you're going to sell through, you're probably not. Even at the audio, even a well-done audiophile record unless you develop a a name and a reputation, vinyl's tough to sell.
0: So I have to ask, the high-res thing is a a major part of your life. Where does recording fit now?
2: Well, funny enough, I started to miss it. I, I was still recording. I never stopped recording. The premise behind Blue Coast was something that I always enjoyed in a session. I'm sure you've all experienced the musicians come in, they're rehearsing a tune, they sit in a circle somewhere and they're just playing. No headphones, they just play. And they get in, in a in a setup where they can hear each other. And I always liked that better. So when I formed Blue Coast, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to capture the sound of the musicians rehearsing without headphones and playing naturally in a room. Now it's limiting because yeah, you. You can't really bring in big, giant drums. It's not going to work. Right. But So this is just a limiting factor for Blue Coast and not for high end. This is just what I like to do with Blue Coast. I think of it as chamber acoustic music. So I do these small little records because that's what I want to do. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear space. I want to hear air. I want to hear emotion and passion. I want to hear the singer sing. So that's what I've been doing for 10 years. And I started to miss the big drums. <laughs> I started to miss putting people, you know, and so then we go back to the, what I call old school, the headphones, the headphone mixes, you know, um, producing a record, doing some overdubs, having a, a, you know, a little more fun with it. And also the community spirit that happens when you're working on a project over time. Because these Blue Coast records, they're done in a day. I mean, I record them in a day, and then I have to go and mix. So then you're mixing, you're by yourself. Oh, by the way, yeah, we don't let the musicians in. Sorry, (laughs) that's my (laughs) label. They go, go away. And most of them don't care. And guess what? We have have 30,000 people, dedicated audience to what we do. Whatever the musicians think they're going to do with marketing and promotion, radio, PR, is not going to make a dent in our sales, and probably not theirs either. So this is just Blue Coast. But I do miss the other stuff. I miss that, that community that happens. And so we've just started booking the studio again.
1: You are going to say but, so? yeah, Well, yeah, because I came to the same place about ensemble recording, and it's really the only way I wanted to record with no headphones. Yeah. Because I think the performance yeah. is enhanced kind of immeasurably. Um, when nobody has to rely on anything but natural acoustics. Uh, But it ends up, um, I can't go bigger than jazz drums. Right. You know, that's it. And even when they get loud, that can be an issue. But I kind of, you know, I'll get comments, well, it sounds kind of far away when when they're loud and blah, blah. Right. Well, it's like, That's how it sounds. You know, it's really interesting. It
0: seems to be a common thing. I'm realizing it now. As as recording professionals, we go through these different phases of uh, different approaches over time. And and, uh, I mentioned John Cunaberti earlier. John and I were talking at the um, Music Expo at Expression Center the other day. And he's kind of gone in and out of some different methods of recording. And recently his whole one mic thing. Is where he's at now, and and really passionate about it. And it's it's just interesting to hear you two talk about. You know, I did this for a while, and then I missed it, and I come back and I reapproach, and you know, try to get a fresh perspective and and try to look at it in a new way. I love
1: that about it. But I feel exactly the same way as you do. I do my jazz records like that. I mean, it's only if there's an electric guitar or something that fucks it up, and then you have everybody has to use headphones. Yeah. But um, what I do to uh, gratify myself on the other side is I produce tracks. I'm sl- slip g- going more and more towards covers. Me too. Uh, that are just big bashing rock tunes, you know, and, and really, I, I mean, honestly, I don't really make any money. There's an occasional placement, you know, but I get to turn it up and just pound everything and do it like it used to be you know but that's that's just for me and it's expensive because i have to pay everybody you know but i'll do one every six months you know just to like bang it out kind of feel like a drummer yeah having to you know go
0: we're unfortunately we're running short on time so we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up but we we've got to give away some stuff so stay tight let's let's we'll go to the laptop you gotta (laughs) <laughs> he gets the, hit the keys. I want the Bosendorfer. Yeah. Um, okay, so we are going to do some giveaways uh, locally later at the party. But for our friends out on the internet, uh, our listeners, uh, and I got to tell you, the, the listeners come from all over the world. Uh, last month, we had 20,700 downloads of the show. Wow. And it just continues to amaze me. So, I really um I really want to make sure that we uh we take care of those who aren't able to be here with us. So, I'm just going to randomly, you know, look around here, um give me a letter. P P Okay. Let's find Okay. Pat Patton. Pat Patton. Yeah, Pat Patton, if you're out there, I'm going to give you a pair of, uh, on the show, I use these Audio-Technica ATH-M40X headphones. They're not the top-of-the-line Audio-Technica headphones. In fact, they're like 90 bucks and under. But I just love them. So I talk about them all the time. So Gary and the crew over at AT gave me some pairs to give away. So Pat, Patton, is going to get a pair of those headphones. And uh, Stephen, give me a letter. Oh, let's go for a normal one. H. H. Okay. Uh, Presto, how about Arthur Hendrix? How about that? Arthur Hendrix. Go Arthur. Arthur, if you're listening, you're going to get a pair of those headphones. Okay. And uh, Cookie, give me another letter. L. L. Okay. Okay, how about... Okay, and this is going to be for... This is gonna be for a pair of focal alpha 65 speakers. Yeah. One pair of those. Don't worry, there's a pair to give away here locally, too. L-E-I-L-A. Is that Lela? Would you say that's Lela? Yeah. L-E-I-L-A? Yeah. M- uh Mickelwraith Miklera- in Canada. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let me uh let me write that down. So Leela Micklewath, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You're going to get a pair of Focal Alpha 65s. L e i l a, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So uh, that's that. So we're we're going to wrap up here, and I gotta I gotta thank some people. I gotta thank you too. This has really been great, and we have a party that we can we can chat at. But I wish we could we could chat and stream this all day, but but we can't. So I I gotta thank Right off the bat, I gotta I got think John Shempf. John, without John, this wouldn't have happened. I came to him, I sat down and said, I wanna do this thing, I got this concept. And he goes, okay, here's what we're gonna do. And he just laid it all out and I just went, okay. You know what the hell you're talking about. I'm gonna go with your plan. So I wanna thank the whole crew at 25th Street. Uh, John, Jamie, Peter, Scott, Gabriel, you guys, you guys are awesome. Uh, I got to thank our sponsors, UA, you know, got to thank Amanda, I got to thank Gary and crew over at Audio-Technica, Simon at Focal, Jules at Gear Sluts, um, and I got to thank the WCA crew. I got to thank Cole Williams and Chuck Smith and Cliff Truesdell. Cliff does the music. Cole helps me on whatever I need help with. Chuck is that, that deep voice that is at the beginning of the show. Uh, and I gotta thank my wife and kids who are on a plane or sitting in an airport on their way to Colorado for our Thanksgiving week week, which is coming up. So So that's
1: it. Oh that's good. I was well behaved because my daughter was watching.
0: Oh I mean,
1: yeah. She's uh, kinda of rough.
0: Use some choice, choice cuss words, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Holy so that's, uh, right. that's it. Thank you everybody. Cookie, Steven, thank you for being here and
1: uh thank you.